your attention? How would you respond? Well, most of us, when we think of that question, would tend to respond in the area of trials and tribulations. And if that doesn't work, some more trials and tribulations. Well, it surprised you to learn that God has a very different way of getting our attention, a preferred way that He would desire to deal in our lives with than oftentimes we are willing to receive. This preferred method of God's getting our attention in this life is described for us in a very interesting statement made by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. There he says, it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. In other words, God desires for us to grow up. He desires for us to mature in our walk with Him. But from God's point of view, He would much rather bless us to maturity rather than blast us into maturity. And really, the choice is ours. I guess the question we've got to ask ourselves is, how can we live our lives in such a way? How can we position ourselves spiritually so that God can motivate us through His kindness rather than through His chastisement? that we experience the goodness and blessings of God on a more consistent level in our lives than those times when, in His wisdom, He has to turn the heat up upon us. Well, tonight, in our continuing study in the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to go through a passage of Scripture that we could call the best of God's blessing. And in this passage of Scripture, we're going to follow along in the adventures of the life of a woman named Hannah who learned a thing or two about how to receive the desire of her heart from God, but to receive it in such a way that her entire life and the lives of those around her, yes, even the lives of those who would live a thousand years in the future, would be completely transformed by her experience with God. Along the way, we'll catch three very important insights into the fine art of being, as the song says, under the spout where the glory comes out. We're going to see, first of all, a section of Scripture on receiving a blessing. What does it mean for us to be in a place where God blesses us personally? Why does God go out of His way to bless us personally? We'll see some very important insights into that subject tonight. Secondly, we'll see a section of Scripture that we could call reproducing a blessing how we can not only receive God's blessings practically in our lives, but what that is intended to do by God in our lives personally. And finally tonight, we're going to see a very interesting section of Scripture indeed. We're going to see how God's movement in our lives is intended to reveal His plans to us through the fine art of blessing. And we're going to see not only a look into Hannah's prayer closet, but we're going to see that the prayer that God inspired through the series of blessings He brought to bear on this woman's life were blessings and insights into God's ultimate blessing, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to open our understanding to this and and to open our lives to be more receptive to the blessings of God that He desires to pour forth upon us without measure and limit. Father, we thank You that You are a loving God, that You are a God who cares so deeply for us. And the Lord, even as a loving Father, delights in blessing His children, so, Lord, You delight in blessing us. 
You have spiritual treasures for us. You have even physical and practical interventions in our lives that You would desire to bring about and desire to show us, Lord. Not just to make our lives here easier or to get us complacent or comfortable, but rather, use these blessings to conform us to the image of Christ. May we be people that are motivated in just that way. May we come to understand just how much You love us And as we see those tangible signs of your love that you pour out upon our lives every day, may it cause us just to want to love you more in return and so be conformed more into the image of your Son. We thank you for this time. We pray that you would teach us these truths. Write them upon our heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been with us in our study of the book of 1 Samuel, you know that 1 Samuel really does focus in on the life and trials and tribulations of one particular family, the family of a man by the name of Elkanah. Elkanah was, well, how shall we say, a product of his environment. At that time, it was not at all uncommon for men to have more than one wife. And the reason behind that was simple. This was the tail end of a period of history known as the time of the judges in Israel. And the hallmark that described that time. The guiding philosophy was this. There was no king in Israel, the Scriptures say, but every man did what was right in his own eyes. You think situational ethics and the idea of, hey, if it works for you, it's groovy, is something that was invented in the 60s, you are in for a shock. It was doing land office business in that day. And so this fellow Elkanah, Although he had a wife whom he loved very dearly named Hannah. Hannah, by the way, her name meant grace. Hannah had a problem. She couldn't have children. Or at least it appeared to be so at that time. And so, because not having children and not having a bunch of hands to help you plow the South 40 was considered a shame in Israel, Elkanah took matters into his own hands, did what was right in his own eyes, and took another wife, a woman named Peninnah, whose name meant pearl or coral, a a costly sort of thing. And it was a costly move for Elkanah and for his family. It was really a devastating move because Peninnah began to have children. And because Peninnah realized that although she was having the kids, she was still in second place in terms of her husband's affection, she began to turn both barrels on that very sore spot in Hannah's life. And so Hannah... Although she had a husband who loved her dearly, although she was provided for in luxury, it seems, she was not happy. As a matter of fact, we are told that she was so devastated that even though the family went to Shiloh, the place where the tabernacle of God was stationed at that time in Israel, she couldn't enter into the feasting. She couldn't even enjoy the blessings that she had received. And so she turned her heart to God and called out upon the Lord, asking God to relieve her of her childless condition. Well, if there was ever an individual who would be a poster child for one of those, well, I tried church once and boy, did I have a bad experience, it would have been Hannah. Because there she was calling out to the Lord in such agony she couldn't even express the words out loud. She was praying in her heart. And lo and behold, the high priest who was running the show, a fellow named Eli, looked at her and said, oh, another drunk woman in the sanctuary. Now I'll go over here and lay on her my patented temperance sermon. 
said, how long will you be drunk? Put away your bottle, woman. Jumping to massive conclusions. And Hannah said, oh, I'm not drunk. I'm just expressing the agony of my soul before God. Please, you know, don't consider me like one of the worthless women or someone who doesn't know God. And Eli, being an expert in ministry, just said, well, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant your petition. (laughs) Hardly what you would call a real compassionate response. But interestingly, we are told in verse 18 that after she heard those words, the depression that was all over her like a cheap raincoat lifted. She was no longer sad, the Scripture says, because God began to do a work in her life. And that internal work is something that we see continuing on in verse 19. That's where we pick up our study tonight. There we read, Then they rose early in the morning, that is Elkanah and the extended family, and worshipped before the Lord, and returned and came to their house at Ramah. Now I think it's very interesting in terms of anticipating a blessing from God that the first thing that Hannah did after her encounter with Eli in this sanctuary, after pouring out her heart before God, was worship. I think the sequence of that is very interesting because in human nature, if your heart is anything like my heart, I tend to have wonderful worship times after I see God's deliverance, not before. I mean, there are times, and you know, I've gone through times in life where, you know, the finances have been really tight and, you know, I have stories I can tell you along the way in ministry how, you know, I just didn't know I was going to pay the bills or I didn't know how I was going to be able to uh, get enough money to take my next class in seminary and then boom, just out of the blue, something comes in in the mail. And, and, you know, just rejoice in all of that. And I remember one time one of these deliverances happened. I was just rejoicing. goes, gosh, Lord, I just can't believe that you provided for us in this way. You're so awesome. You're so wonderful. And it's like the Lord spoke to my heart while I was rejoicing over this, saying, well, why weren't you rejoicing before you got the check? I mean, I'm still God. I was still going to provide for you. Why couldn't you have been excited about that instead of seeing this check in your hand? How do you know that check's not going to bounce? Oh, no, don't bring that up, Lord. But that's the way we tend to work. We see results first, and then we enter into worship. Hannah, bless her heart, had seen no result. She, as far as she was concerned, was still as childless as the day she came to that tabernacle. But God had spoken something to her heart. God had let her know that he was well aware of the circumstances that she was in. And so, that inspired faith in Hannah's heart. And you know, I think if we're really going to get in a place where we are going to be blessed, if you really want to be in that place where you don't miss the best of God's blessings, that's really where it's got to start. You see, faith is a very important thing to God. Sometimes we wonder, why does God put such a huge premium on faith? I mean, why of all things in the world has God chosen faith, for instance, to be that which allows us to even enter into salvation itself? Well, I believe the reason that God puts such a high value, such a high premium on faith is because, honestly, when you stop and think about it, what more sincere expression of love can you give to anyone than to trust them? In fact, if you really want to find out how much you love somebody, you can find out by measuring what you're willing to trust them with. Hannah was willing to trust God with her life. You know, I love what Hebrews chapter 1 has to say about the fine art of pleasing God by faith. 
Now, notice what it says about faith. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 says, Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That term substance there can be translated the title deed. In other words, when you have faith, when you trust God, you realize there is no good thing that God will withhold from you. If you need it, you've got it. If you don't have it, you don't need it. That's a wonderful way to live. It takes so much of the stress off. And notice how valuable faith is to God. Verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 11 says this, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, that is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. You see, that's what God is really looking for. Some people will ask me, what do you think the finest form of praise really is? Is it lifting your hands to God? Is it singing? Is it playing an instrument for the glory of God? Is it doing some good work for God? No, I really believe that what God is really looking for, what He really desires to do in our hearts, is probably the toughest thing for us to deal with as human beings. He wants us to learn to trust Him. That's what God's all about. And, and you know, when you stop and think about it, I mean, what do we do worse than trust? I mean, ever since Adam and Eve hightailed it off of the bushes in the Garden of Eden, that's precisely the last thing that we want to do. We like to control. We like to manage. We like to manipulate. And God says, no, that's not how it works in my kingdom. We love it a lot better if the plan of salvation, for instance, was to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and put a dollar in the agape box. Because then we could say, hey, I put my dollar in the agape box. I did my part. You know, that's why you have all of these cults that come along and say, oh, well, you need to do all these works. And human pride just loves that. Because we don't have to trust anymore. We can trust in what we do rather than saying, God, I cannot trust in anything else but what you've done for me. Well, Hannah, bless her heart, found herself in that place where she had no choice but to trust God. I mean, if God didn't intervene, she would never have children. And you know, it's kind of funny. It's those situations you get into where you've got no other choice. Where you have no other choice but to trust God. You know, you've tried all your schemes, you've tried all your scams, you've tried all your manipulations, but you know in your heart they've all failed. You find yourself saying, God, unless you come through, it's all over. It's just amazing when you get to that point how you find peace at that moment. It really is amazing how the Lord meets you there. And so I believe that when Hannah and her family were worshiping and as they returned to their house at Ramah, that kind of peace was resting upon her heart. Now notice something else. There's a really interesting insight not only in how to anticipate the blessings of God through faith, but how to appropriate them. Notice it says, And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Now, if Hannah was going to have kids, two things had to happen. First, she had to have a relationship with her husband. And secondly, she had to have a relationship with God. Because unless both of those things were happening, the situation wasn't going to change. And I think there's a really important lesson for us as well in terms of being blessed by God. Have you ever run into people who seem to think that blessings are just going to fall out of the sky and kind of bonk them on the head from heaven? You know, they have this attitude like, well, you know, if the Lord wants to meet my needs, you know, He'll, he'll blow a winning lottery ticket in through the chimney, you know, and then my needs will be met. Well, you know, I say to people like that, yeah, God desires to meet your needs, but have you ever stopped to consider that He might meet your needs through 
I mean, possibly a job. <laughs> that might mean you have to go to work. But is that any less a blessing from God? No. You see, there's God's part in being blessed, but God always calls us to be a part of things as well. We have human responsibility. You know, maybe you've heard the old story uh, about a guy who lived down in Louisiana during flood season. You don't even have to live in Louisiana to relate to this. A couple of days ago, he could be in Tucson. But, you know, he was there and, and the floodwaters started to rise. The rain was coming down and the floodwaters got up to his patio, right up to his porch. And lo and behold, down the street came a guy in a four-by and you know, he said, hey, you want to get in the back? You know, I can take you out. He goes, no, no, no. I think God is going to provide for me. Thanks anyway. And the rain kept falling down and the water got higher and pretty soon it was up to his roof and he's sitting there on the roof and a guy comes by in a boat and he goes, hey, jump in the boat. I can save you. No, no, no. I got faith. I think God's going to save me. Well, the floodwaters get higher and he's sitting on the top of his chimney now and a helicopter comes by and says, grab the rope. We can save you. And he goes, no, no, no. I got faith. I believe God's going to save me. Well, the waters kept rising. The guy drowns. He drowns. He finds himself standing before God in heaven and he is ticked off. He goes, this wasn't supposed to happen. I can't believe this. He goes, no disrespect intended, Father, but here I was. I put my faith, my trust in you. I told everybody you're going to be my deliverer and you let me drown. And God looks at him and goes, huh. I mean, you didn't get the four-by and the boat and the helicopter I sent? Sometimes we are so busy waiting for the dramatic supernatural intervention and we forget that God is about the business of helping us, yes, by encouraging us to be responsible as well. See, the blessings of God are no substitute for personal responsibility. We've got to take care of business. God will do the legwork, believe me. I mean, I really believe that when it comes to the work of God, the old saying is true, 99% of success is showing up, but we've got to show up. We've got to be open to what God calls us to do. We've got to be faithful to what He called us to do. And so, Hannah was faithful in all this. Now notice, it says, and the Lord remembered her. What a sweet, sweet term. The Lord remembered her. It wasn't like God had forgotten. Oh, yeah, oh, what's her name again, Gabe? Could you tell me that woman's name down there again? No, the idea is to remember in terms of fulfilling a promise. To remember in terms of pouring out favor upon someone. Remember when Jesus died on the cross? When He was dying on the cross, He didn't die alone. There were two thieves on either side. Do you remember the request of the thief who repented and decided, hey, I'm dying here. It's not going to do me any good to keep cursing this guy. Remember what He said to Jesus? He rebuked the other thief and said, don't you even fear God when you're dying? Hey, we deserve what we're getting here, but this man's done nothing wrong. He looked at Jesus and what did He say? Remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. Remember to show me favor. Remember to fulfill your good promises. And how did the Lord respond to that? He said, truly, truly, I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. God remembered. And so God remembered Hannah. And here we see the appreciation of a blessing. Look at verse 20. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel saying, because I have asked for him from the Lord. Now, Samuel doesn't mean asked for by, from God. It literally means heard by God. Samuel was Hannah's way of commemorating the fact that God 
remembered her plight, that God had heard her prayers. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice in his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. Wow. Here we see what was going through Hannah's mind. Notice, God not only remembered to be faithful to Hannah, but Hannah, because she recognized the faithfulness of God, also remembered that prayer she prayed when she was there in the tabernacle. Remember what she said to God? Chapter 1 and verse 11, it says, Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. Now, Hannah wasn't just praying a foxhole prayer here. Now, he wasn't just, she wasn't just praying one of those prayers that says, you know, I, oh yeah, yeah, God, if you grant my request, boy, you know, I'll go serve you as a missionary in Africa. I'll be sure to follow through and I'll be, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give twice the amount that I'm given to the church these days. No, it wasn't one of those things. She took it very, very seriously. You know, as I was reading this, it reminded me of one of the most delightful discoveries that I made after I became a Christian. You know, I got saved in 1973, and really I was the first one in my immediate family to become a Christian. And after I became a Christian, you know, and you know, my folks could see that I was interested in spiritual things, you know, and my grandparents, my grandmother gave me something really wild. It was the family Bible, the old family Bible. And it was just loaded with stuff. And, and it was something that my great aunt had kept. She was a Christian and she had passed away at that time. So I never really got a chance to fellowship with her. But reading through this Bible and seeing all the notes that she left, and it was really kind of neat. He's like, wow, you know, my Aunt Pearl, gosh, she really loved the Lord. But in this Bible was something else. There were copies of a letter that was written by my great, great, great grandfather. His name was Paul. And very interestingly, in one of these letters, he describes how he came to Jesus Christ. He gave his life to Jesus Christ on the evening of the Battle of Bull Run in the Civil War. And he was so terrified of what was going to go on the following morning. He gave his life to Christ. The chaplain baptized him in a stream that was there in the area. And he told God that if he survived the battle, he would go into ministry and serve God for the rest of his life. Well... Good old Paul, he was true to his word. He not only survived the battle, he went into the ministry. He was a Methodist minister, and, and it was just amazing. He spent the rest of his life serving as one of those circuit-riding Methodist pastors, starting churches, being there for about two years, and moving on and moving on and moving on. I think he outlived three wives <laughs> doing that. But it was just amazing reading all of this, because here was a guy who did make a foxhole conversion. He didn't like the idea of facing enemy fire without his eternal destiny being settled. What I loved about the guy was after the battle was over, it wasn't one of those, oh, thanks God, and now I'll get on with my life. Hannah was the same way. Here she sees this bouncing baby boy. The desire of her heart had been fulfilled. <laughs> and you know what? She wasn't going to forget about God. She wasn't going to forget the promise that she made to the Lord so Elkanah, her husband, said to her, verse 23, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. You know, here you see 
a, a classic example of how Elkanah was a product of his time, but he wasn't a bad guy. He's reminding his wife, you know, I see that look in your eyes, dear. And maybe you guys out there have seen that. When the first baby comes and you see that look that women get in their eyes and they see that baby and you're going, <laughs> I'm number two or three or four around here on the priority list. I'm sure Elkanah looked at that situation and said, yeah, I know you love that baby and I know that's the desire of your heart and you never thought anything like this was going to happen to you. Don't forget what you told God. Don't forget what you told him. Now, I'm not sure Hannah needed the encouragement. But here you see that both of them, I believe, were growing in their walk with the Lord through this process. And so, here's this great blessing, this wonderful blessing. And you know what is really interesting? The idea of keeping the child until she had weaned him. In that culture, we are told, for instance, in the book of Maccabees, that the traditional Jewish time limit for weaning a child was three years Three years. Well, that's awfully old to still be nursing a child, especially when the teeth come in and all of that. My goodness. But that's how much time she had with her little boy, Samuel. Now, there, there's two ways to look at that. You know, on the negative side, you look at that and say, wow, three years, that's just enough time to really get bonded and then you've got to give it up. But then, on the other side of the coin, three years was also a godsend. As I'm sure from Hannah's point of view, she'd say, yeah, this is three years I never thought I'd have. Three years to really appreciate this blessing. And you know, I guess this is a very important point to make. There are some people who believe that God gets some kind of delight in giving us something that we really want and then snatching it away from us and saying, okay, do you still love me after I did that? Oh, that's not God. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. God knows how to give good gifts to His children. Yeah, there are times where God will take things away from us that we think we need. And sometimes we don't like that. My parents tell the story of my early years. I, I have a confession to make here. I was a binkaholic as a child. I just loved my binky. You know, I mean, if there had been a 12-step support group for, for binky abuse, I would have been in it. Oh, I'm this guy. I'm a binkaholic. You know, I, that's, that's pretty much where I would have been. And, you know, I just love that binky, but, you know, by the time I got to be about a year and a half, two years old, my parents said, ah, I think we've had enough time with the binky here. So they took it away from me, and I didn't like it a bit. And the story is told, I kid you not. I, I spent the first two years of my life in Georgia. My folks were down there in the service, and they were going to catch the plane to fly back to California and, you know, start their new life. And we're standing there in the airport in Atlanta, Georgia, and apparently there was some kid that, you know, kind of looked a little bit ratty and a little bit dirty, but he had a binky. And according to my folks, they looked on in horror as I ran right over to the kid, looked him in the face, grabbed the binky out of his mouth and put it in mine. Well, my folks immediately put an end to all of that. And I didn't like it when they took away my binky. And sometimes we're that way with God, aren't we? We look at things in life and say, how could there be a loving God? He's taking away my binky. Oh, you know, we think our things are a lot more sophisticated than binkies, but I guarantee you, when we stand before the Lord someday and we look back on all the things that we thought were so important, all the things we agonized over, and God took it away, and how could God do this, and what is God doing here? We're going to kind of look back and go, it was a binky, wasn't it, Lord? It was just making my spiritual teeth crooked. I get it now. <laughs> That's what I think we're going to be saying a lot of when we get to heaven. I get it now. I understand now. Well, that's exactly what was going on here. God 
blessed this family. God blessed Hannah in a way that absolutely blew her mind. And you know, the question we could ask ourselves at this point is, how can we, like Hannah, get to a place where we are properly positioned to receive God's greatest blessings? How can you make sure that you are online with God when He wants to bless you so that these sort of things, these wonderful mercies that He shows, don't pass you by? I think there's a very interesting scripture found in the book of Jude. Jude is the second to the last book in your Bible. It's right before the book of Revelation. It's such a small book, it doesn't have more than one chapter. But boy, it has some powerful things to say. Among them are the words that we find recorded in Jude, verse 20 and 21. There we read, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. How can you be at that place? How can you be under that spout where the glory comes out? Two very important things. First of all, be growing. Be building yourself up in your most holy faith. Be in a place where you have an attitude when you wake up in the morning you say, God, at the end of this day, I'd like to know you better. At the end of this day, I want to know more about your word. At the end of this day, I want to yield more of myself to you. You'll be building yourself up in your holy faith. And I guarantee you that's a, pray, that's a prayer that God will answer. And the second part is all about prayer. Praying in the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? It means to pray according to the leading and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It means to pray as God would lead you to pray. It means praying according to the Word of God. The will of God as it's revealed in the Word of God. That's what praying in the Holy Spirit's all about. It's not just about speaking in tongues. I mean, that's a wonderful way to pray in the Spirit. But if you don't have the gift of tongues, you can still pray in the Spirit if you pray according to God's will. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14 says this, And this is the confidence we have before Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if He hears us, we have the request which we have made of Him. If we ask anything according to His will. You know, I understand that a lot better now as a parent than I used to. Because, you know, I used to think that I could come before God with any old thing and if I stamp in Jesus' name on it, then God's got to come through. But now as a parent, I begin to understand something. You know, my kids are in a place where they have to ask me things. And I have a responsibility as a parent not to give them everything that they ask for. In fact, sometimes the most loving thing that I can say to them is no, or not yet, or not right now. Now, they don't understand that. But my role as a parent requires me to look out for their best interest, to look out for their best good. God looks at us exactly the same. And you know what? I think I've been a Christian just long enough to figure this out. I haven't figured out a lot of things in the Christian life But one of the things I have figured out is this. I only want what God wants for my life. Man, no matter how good something might seem to me, would you really want something in your life if it wasn't what God wanted for you? If it was what you wanted, but it wasn't what the Lord wanted? Man, it just seems to make more and more sense to me that He's got a higher perspective on things than I do. And so rather than looking at praying, if it be your will, as a cop-out, or something that kills my faith, like some people teach these days. I've come to 
to see that praying, if it be your will, is probably the most sincere form of praise I can give to God. And it's the best way to get yourself in that place where God can give you every good and perfect gift He wants to give. If it be your will. If it be your will, God, you have it your way. And so we see this amazing blessing poured out upon this family. But you know, when God blesses, it isn't just to bless us. It's to bless other people as well. And we're going to see that this blessing of this little boy, Samuel, given to this family, was going to be truly a gift that would keep on giving. Look at verse 24. It says, Now when she had weaned him, she took up with her and uh, with three bowls, one ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Some people say, well, what is this deal with the three bowls and one ephah of flour? Uh, believe it or not, a lot of commentaries go back and forth about all of this, and it's kind of a semi-controversy. I think probably the easiest explanation of all of this is that if you were going to go and offer a thank offering at one of the festivals of Israel, what you'd be required to offer was one bowl and one-third of an ephah of flour. Now, if this child was of weaning age, the traditional weaning age of three years old, that means that Hannah had missed three of these festivals. So basically, she was going there, and her husband was going to provide enough of these sacrifices to, in a sense, balance the books. And so I think that's what was going on in this circumstance. And so, here we see this going on. But there was a greater sacrifice that was going to be made here. Not just three bowls and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine. What was the greater sacrifice that was going to be made? She was going to take her little boy and leave him at the tabernacle as a living sacrifice. He was going to learn to serve God from three years old up. From three years old on, he was going to be completely devoted and dedicated to God. That's what being a living sacrifice is all about. I mean, it's easy to offer dead sacrifices, isn't it? I mean, sometimes I think we like it better if all God asks for, uh, for, from us is, is, you know, like, like money or, or, you know, supporting someone else doing the work of the Lord. But God doesn't settle for that. You know, some people say, well, what does God really want from me? I mean, after all, I go to church. I'm even here on a Wednesday night. What else could God want from me? I'm already giving Him my time and my talent and my treasure. What else does God want from me? He wants one thing more from you than all that. He wants you. He wants your heart. Lock, stock, and barrel. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. You really want to find out what real worship is all about, where the rubber meets the road, where religion fades away and relationship begins to kick in. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's reasonable, Paul says, in light of what God's done for you. And yielding your life to Him, it's no big deal. You get to be a living sacrifice. What did it cost Jesus to save you? He had to be a dying sacrifice to save you and me. In a sense, we've got the easy part. We just respond to the goodness and the love of God. And here we see a picture of that. I mean, that is a challenging, challenging thing. Verse 25 says, Then they slaughtered a bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I have asked of him. 
Therefore, I have also lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. You know, I, I can't help but think that this encounter with Eli was kind of a funny thing, probably. Remember, it had been three years since Eli had seen hiding her hair of this woman. I mean, I imagine he kind of felt a little embarrassed about the encounter, truth be told. I mean, after all, here was this woman seeking the Lord, and he thought she had an alcohol problem, kind of dumped on her, and then kind of gave her the old blessing brush off. You know, oh, Lord be with you, and i got to go now. Well, here this woman's back, and she's going, you remember me, don't you? I mean, I get that sometimes, you know. I mean, I've been here serving in this church for, the church has been going here for just about seven years now going on. Isn't that amazing? God has just been doing such awesome things in that time. But you need to understand, prior to that time, I served at another church here in Tucson. I spent three years at Calvary Costa Mesa, but prior to that time, I served five years in another church in Tucson. And Tucson being the world's largest small town, every once in a while I will get people coming up to me and saying, hey, you know, know, like this. And one thing I've discovered is that if you ever do announcements in a church, you ever just do announcements, Everybody in the church assumes you are good buddies, that, that you have this close personal relationship. And I will see some people, you know, and I mean, let's do the math here. Seven years, three years, five years. We're talking 15 years. And I will see some people that I haven't seen for 15 years. They're like, oh, oh Scott, how are you? It's not like, oh, I hope they don't ask me if I remember their name. <laughs> hey, how's it going, bro? You know, you can always tell when a Christian doesn't know somebody's name. When they throw that one in, hey, sister, how are you? You know, and I'm sure Eli's kind of going, who in the world is this woman and what's the kid and all this stuff going on? She starts to explain. She says, you know, I made a commitment to God. I, for this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore, I have also lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. Very interesting statement here. I will lend him to the Lord. Well, that's one way that that Hebrew word can be translated. But I think, in a sense, Hannah has things reversed here. See, we don't lend our kids to the Lord. The Lord lends our kids to us. We don't own our kids. If you don't believe that's true, maybe you think that's true right now, but if you don't think that's true, wait till they turn like 18 or 21 and suddenly they want to leave. You're like, what? You're going to leave? After all I've invested in you, after all the times I've fed your mouth and clothed you and and all these things we've gone through, and now you're just going to leave on me? Yeah, that's what they're supposed to do. You didn't sign up to own them. You know, one of the tragic things is, I, I think, when, you know, someone finally gets out of the house and you finally wave goodbye, you know, and all this stuff, and you see them out on the highway. You know, the thing that I hear from parents is this. Yeah, you know, it was rough seeing them go, but it's even rougher when they come back. <laughs> it's like the gift that keeps on giving. They're back again. Shouldn't you be out there like having your own place and stuff like this? Okay, you can stay the night, but, you know, and I think that's where dads come in because, you know, the moms are always going like, oh, my baby, come on back. I've left your room just the way you, you know, and the dads can like get out there and get uh, start making a living and all God lends us our kids. We need to understand that. We only have a few years to invest in their lives. And since God does lend us our kids, they don't belong to us. They're their own independent person. Ultimately, they belong to God. Have you ever had someone lend you something really valuable? 
man, it's like with me, I get so nervous when someone lends me something valuable, you know, like a valuable tool or something like that, or they let me drive their expensive car. I get so nervous about that, I'm almost like, gosh, I just wish you'd keep it. You know, I, I just wish I'd go down to, you know, rent a wreck and, and, you know, get a car I'd feel comfortable with, because as soon as you start driving someone's nice car around, suddenly you become painfully aware uh, of how you're just surrounded by maniac drivers. Remember that goofy cartoon where he just kind of goes Jekyll and Hyde and he's a real nice guy and he gets behind the wheel and he's like that. You're just surrounded by goofies on the road. They all look like goofy to you. You know, you're just so paranoid because it's something precious and you don't want to mess it up. And so you drive real carefully. You know, you got your hands at, you know, two and ten instead of sitting back there like you usually do and... You know, you're looking both ways and you're signaling and, you know, you're not only got like your clicker on, you've got your hand up and all this. You're doing all this stuff because it's somebody else's car. It belongs to somebody else and you don't want to damage something that is that valuable. Boy, how different our parenting would be if we looked at our kids that same way. They don't belong to us. They belong to God. And God considers them of infinite worth. They aren't just your kids. They aren't just the pain in the necks that are supposed to be taken away from all your fun. They're God's greatest blessing to you. And you only have a few short years to impact their lives. What kind of impact are you making? What sort of lessons are you sowing into them? Because like Hannah, you're going to come to a place. Hannah came to this place very early at three years of age. But you're going to come to that place where your direct input into their lives is going to be dramatically curtailed. At that point, you're going to say, well, I've had my shot. It's up to them from here on out. Boy, Scripture, boy, it really lays a great stress on us taking this seriously. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, it says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. You know, one thing that I really want to see as true about my kids is that they love the Lord. People say, do you have some great plans for your kids? I mean, is Sean going to be the next preacher in the family and all that? Hey, if the Lord calls him, that's great. Do you know what I desire for Sean and for Sarah? And I hope it's what you desire for your kids. I desire that they have a desire to follow Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what my prayer is for them. Because if they find their peace in His love, if they find their strength in His presence, if they find that His ways will really satisfy then I'll be at peace about what we've done in the home. And that's what I pray for every day. Hey, they've got to make their own decisions. They've got to come to know God on their own terms. They've got to have their own relationship with God. I can't have that relationship with them, neither can Pam. But one thing we can do is we can be an example to them. You know, you've heard the old expression, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Yeah, but you can salt the horse. You make him thirsty. Does your life make your kids thirsty to follow Jesus Christ? When they look at you, do they want what you've got? That, I believe, was Hannah's greatest gift to Samuel, right from the get-go. Even those first three years were just crucial in the life of this man who would be such an instrumental man of God. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshiped the Lord there. You know what I love about all of this? is that Hannah got something here. Hannah understood something about a blessing. 
See, her blessing wasn't just something that she was going to put under a bushel basket and sit on the basket and say, God, whatever you do, don't take my blessing away. Rather, Hannah, I think, was free to commit Samuel into this service because she realized something. It wasn't the blessing that was the greatest joy in her life. It was knowing the blesser. It was knowing the one who gave the blessing. Every time she looked at Samuel, every time she looked at that kid, she looked at him and said, isn't God good? Isn't he amazing? And that's why God blesses us. Not so that we get all hooked into our blessing, but that we recognize and realize that he is the source, as James says, of every good and perfect gift. Every good and perfect thing you have in your life, as Scripture says, comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That's what God wants us to understand. But this blessing that uh, Hannah received was going to cause Hannah to enter into a depth of understanding of God's great plan that would just absolutely blow not only her mind, not only her husband's mind, but actually when you begin to understand it, can blow our minds in our day and our age. Look at chapter 2 beginning at verse 1. It says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. The idea of the horn is the idea of power. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Hannah begins her prayer by reciting the character of God. She remembers who God is and what He's all about. If you ever have a hard time praying, if you ever have a hard time being thankful, if you ever have a hard time finding joy in your life, turn your attention back to God. I mean, it may take a little bit of discipline, but spend a few moments and just recite in your mind some of God's great attributes. Boy, there's nothing that will get you out of the, the mud and the, the bogs of depression and despair more than realizing who God is. And if you have a hard time with that, I just encourage you to look through some of the Psalms and just meditate on the goodness of the Lord and, and His awesome, awesome being. Who is like Him? You know, Isaiah chapter 40 is a great chapter to read through. If you ever have a hard time focusing your attention on God and how awesome and majestic He is, that's how Hannah began her prayers. She recited the character of God, but notice she's also going to talk about the care of God that's been demonstrated in her life. Verse 3 says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren is born seven, and she who has had many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and He has set the world upon them. Now, we can understand a little bit of why she is talking in this way about how God takes the humble and exalts them. You remember the life situation she was in for years and years and years. She endured the abuse at the hands of the other spouse in the family. This Penina telling her, oh, well, if God loves you so much, we're the kids. Our children a heritage from the Lord. God clearly loves me more than He loves you. See? But you know, the wonderful thing about God is He has a wonderful way of balancing the books. 
hey, there might be people who look at you and they say, how could God possibly love them? And they are this and they are that and they are the other. Hey, people will have different opinions about you in life. But you know what? Let God settle it. Let God balance the books. He has a funny way of lifting up those who are downtrodden and humbling those who exalt themselves. But notice something else that she prays for and prays about. It's really the control of God in this world. And this is where this prayer really gets heavy. He will guard the feet of His saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven He will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. You may want to underline those last two words. His anointed. Because these words are extremely significant. There is a principle in biblical interpretation that is just fascinating. The more I go on studying the Bible, the more fascinating I find it. It's called the law of first mention. When you go through the Scripture and you find where the first time a major thing in Scripture is mentioned, boy, you can really pick up a lot of insight. Like, for instance, do you know the first place in Scripture where God's love is mentioned? The word love comes into play. Genesis chapter 22. God saying to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. That's the first time the word love occurs in the Bible. And sacrifice him on the mountain, which I will show you. The first time love is mentioned in the Bible was that glorious picture of our Lord Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on our behalf. Man, the law of first mention will blow your mind. Why am I talking about the law of first mention here? Because those last two words, His anointed, Hebrew, very significant. It's the Hebrew word Mashiach. We would know it as Messiah. The first mention of Messiah in the Scripture a coming king who would be the Lord's anointed, the one who would be set apart by God, the one upon whom the oil, which represents the anointing of the Holy Spirit, would be poured upon, is mentioned here in this prayer. And we might say to ourselves, well, how much did Hannah really know what she was talking about when she talked about the anointed, when she talked about God's king? Well, you need to understand something. There were no kings in Israel at this point. The first king of Israel was going to be this guy named Saul, whom Samuel would anoint, <laughs> much to his later dismay. There would come another king whom Samuel would also anoint. His name was David. And we're going to see these things develop in this book. We see some real foreshadowing here. Are these the Messiah being referred to here? No, I believe these words go far into the future. Nearly 1,100 years into the future Hannah was looking at. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? Why out of all the places in Scripture for the idea of the Messiah, God's anointed deliverer, the one who will come and bring peace, not only just physical peace, but spiritual peace to His people, why would it be mentioned here? Why would a person like Hannah be given the privilege of mentioning Messiah for the first time? Well, stop and think for just a second. What was Hannah's life situation? She was a woman who knew what it was like. Please try to follow me on this. 
against all expectation, against anything that anybody could expect in life, she had a son by the intervention of God. Secondly, she gave up her desires to see God's plan fulfilled for this son. She committed him utterly into the service of God, even though, and you ladies out there can probably tell we men here a thing or two about this, how painful that must have been to leave your little three-year-old to be raised by somebody else. Just enough time to be bonded and then you got to let him go. She knew what that was like. Now, who does that sound like in the future? Does that sound like a parallel to someone else who would come on the scene? Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Luke, chapter 1. In the book of Luke, chapter 1, we see probably one of the most stunning announcements ever given to any human being on this globe in the history of mankind. Luke, chapter 1, and verse 26, it says, Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and, he shall be, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her, who is called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Two things about Mary here. Mary was going to have a son by very unusual means. No human expectation could have prepared anybody for what God was going to do in the life of this woman. And it was such a mind blower that even her own betrothed husband, who had never had relations with her, looked at her and when she announced that she was pregnant, he thought it was the world's lamest excuse for an unplanned pregnancy. He was going to put her away. He was going to do it quietly because he didn't mean her any harm. He didn't want her branded as an adulteress the rest of her life, but he didn't believe it until an angel set him straight. This woman was going to have a child. And when Mary brought that child to the temple to be dedicated, a man named Simeon, who was a prophet, took the child up in his arms and blessed the child. And then he had something very interesting to say to Mary. In verse 34 of Luke chapter 2, he said, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. The thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Mary, like Hannah, would face that moment. Hannah perhaps had to face it a little earlier. Mary had to face that moment where her desires for her son. 
and her emotional attachment to her son and God's plan for her son would be two different things. And she would have to yield to God. Is it any wonder then, you're probably saying, well, this seems a little bit like a stretch here, bringing Mary involved with all this. I don't see what this has to do with Hannah's prayer. If you think this is a stretch, turn back again another chapter to Luke chapter 1 and verse 46. After visiting her cousin, Elizabeth, and basically <laughs> seeing that all these things that the angel said were being confirmed, Mary began to launch into a psalm. It's called the Song of Mary. Maybe those of you from traditional church backgrounds know it as the Magnificat. That's what it's referred to in the Roman Catholic Church. But it's what Mary said concerning all of this. Listen to her words and see if they sound familiar in light of Hannah's prayer. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior. For he's regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has set away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Do you understand what the Magnificat is? It's a paraphrase of Hannah's prayer. <laughs> Mary was a woman of the Word. She remembered Hannah's prayer. And she made it her own. She adjusted it and altered it a little bit to set it in her circumstances. But understand this. When Mary realized she would be the vehicle through whom Messiah would come into the world, she thought back, to the first woman to whom Messiah would be revealed. And what an awesome thing of all the people in the world to have revealed the coming of the Messiah. A woman who knew what it was like to be despised. A woman who knew what it was like to be shamed. A woman who knew what it was like to come to a place where God and only God could be your hope and a deliverance. <laughs> who better to break the news to than a Messiah the Messiah was coming. And I think this tells us something about blessings we've got to understand because this will keep you out of a lot of confusion and of a lot of trouble. A lot of people say, well, why doesn't God bless me in this way? And why doesn't God do this in my life? And, and, and if God really loves me, why doesn't He straighten out this situation that's going on around here? And they're just looking at the horizontal. Do you understand something? God doesn't bless you to make you more comfortable. God will not bless you in that way because He knows all it would do is make you more complacent. When God blesses, please understand this, is for one purpose and one purpose alone, to get your eyes off the horizontal and onto the heavenly. To get your eyes off yourself and onto the Savior. That is the purpose of every blessing. Every physical intervention that God has done in your life is there for one reason. To say, you know what? I've blessed you, but there's a greater blessing. You might like this, but there's someone else you need to really be paying attention to. All blessings point to the blesser. 
2 Corinthians 9.15, the Apostle Paul said this, speaking of the whole idea of blessings, he said, Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. You want to be in that place in your life where you're under the spout, where the glory comes out. Where you live a life of consistent blessing. Where, where God literally blesses you and you move from glory to glory in your walk with the Lord. Now that's always going to be a cakewalk, not that you're just going to be, oh, oh, what's going to happen next? Gee, I can't wait for another shiny, happy day because God's blessings sometimes come in odd packages. But if you want to be in that place where the Lord can do in you and through you and among you everything that He desires, keep your eyes on the Savior. Keep your eyes on His greatest gift. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, thank You that Your Word tells us so much about Your plans for us. And Lord, I'm just reminded in this moment of what Jeremiah 29:13 says. He declared there that you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Lord, there are so many things that come our way in in this life that can get our eyes off of you and distract us. Please, Lord, give us that single-mindedness. Help us to realize, Lord, that in your economy, if we need something, we've got it. If we don't have it, we don't need it. And we need to trust you for those things. But I thank you, Lord, that you are wise in your dealings with us. You know exactly the right balance of sunshine and rain to bring to us so that we aren't on the one side of the coin a swamp and on the other side of the coin a desert. You know exactly how to bless. And Lord, I just pray in this moment you would bring to the minds of the people who are here the things that they've brought before you seeking your blessing, the things that they've desired most in life. And Lord, as those things are running through their minds, as they and think of that one thing that they would desire to have from you more than anything else. I would ask, Lord, that they would see that there is something they need even more than that. And that is to know your love. Because if they know you, they seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, then all these things are going to be added unto them as well. Thank you, Lord. We want to trust you. We want to give you the right to put into our lives and to take out of our lives anything that you would deem necessary for us to have a relationship with you. We want to trust you on that level, Lord. And if we have a hard time doing that, I pray you continue to work on us and bless us, Lord. Bless us into that place. We can put our trust and hope solely and securely in you. In Jesus' name.